This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. There's a story Chris Lundy has been wanting to tell for a while. Storytelling is something he does often on stage in front of audiences. You know, Batman had the Joker, right? Superman had Lex Luthor, the Hatfields had the McCoys. When I was an elementary school teacher, I had Deja. But this is a story he's never shared. It's about a mysterious illness he had when he was a kid and the special treatment he received in a candlelit basement. I've always been a little embarrassed about sharing that story because it's incredible, like literally incredible. It's incredible because of what happened next and because it doesn't fit into our usual understanding of medical treatments and how people heal. When I was at that house, when I was in that basement, what went down? On this episode, stepping outside the boundaries of Western medicine and the effort to understand what people sometimes call alternative or integrative medicine. When does it work? How and why? To get to the bottom of this treatment he received as a kid, Chris Lundy teamed up with reporter Justin Cremont. Here's Chris. I was 10 years old. I was almost 11. I was living in Maryland with my mom and my older sister. The year was 1989. As Chris Lundy tells it, he was a healthy kid, liked to play outside, read comic books. It was a normal day, and all of a sudden I felt this cough coming on. And it was intense. I remember feeling like I wasn't qualified for this level of pain. I mean, it came from the center of my chest. I remember covering my mouth, but removing my hand and looking down and seeing blood all over my hand. Afterward, he was sweating, curled up on the floor. The very next day, cough came, same pain. It started happening day after day. This was summer, and he was home a lot by himself. Chris liked video games, and most days he would stay inside playing them while he anticipated the cough. After several more days, his mom took him to the doctor. The doctor checked him out, ran some tests, but couldn't say what was going on. My mother seemed calm, which made me as a little more worried than I would have been if I would have seen her fear. The cough kept coming, just as painful, just as scary. It continued for a couple weeks until Chris's mom came up with another plan. My mother sent me up to New York. That's where most of Chris's family's from. His mother and her sisters were all born in Haiti and everyone but Chris's mom had established their lives in Brooklyn. Chris didn't know why he was going there now, but it seemed like there was something they weren't telling him. Everybody was really, really nice to me. Overwhelmingly and suspiciously nice. You know, when my aunts hugged me, the hugs were longer than usual. When they talked to me, they talked more gently (laughs) than usual. Even as a kid, he realized something was seriously wrong with him. So the next day, my mother shows up. I remember being really happy to see her, you know. They headed out together, the whole family. The thing that floored me was all the aunts were there. This was so unusual. Outside of a Christmas or Thanksgiving. They arrived at a house Chris didn't recognize. We were greeted by this man, and he brought us downstairs to the basement. And it was interesting because, uh, one, it was, it was dark. It was all candles. There was a tub with flower petals. There was a statue of... The mother, Mary. Chris's mom and aunt sat in chairs lined up along the wall. Chris and the man sat in chairs across from each other in the center of the room. The man told Chris he had special healing abilities that could help Chris. 
He said, what question do you have for me? And I asked him, how'd you get your powers? You know, and again, I was I was big into comic books and things like that. So my little 10 year old mind, it framed it, you know, almost like, what's your hero origin story? The man told Chris about a dream he had where an angel visited him. Then he pulled out an amber glass bottle with a dropper in it. He explained that whenever I feel the cough coming on to put one drop of the liquid inside on my tongue. When I left, I I was skeptical. This was just another thing that we were going to do with no answers. So that night, Chris heads back to Maryland with his mom, amber bottle in hand. Next day, she goes back to work. He goes back to video games until he feels the cough coming on. I found the vial and I put a drop on my tongue. And the coughing sensation goes away. I gotta stop for a second because I know how this sounds, man. Justin, I'm telling you, it went away, man. It went away. (laughs) And when you think that, like, are you like, it's some psychological thing or you're like, no, physically it went. It went away. Like physically. Physically. The liquid in the vial worked the next day and the next. The cough-free days started to stack up and Chris started to believe there was something powerful to what the man had given him. So one night, the coughing sensation came again, as usual, put a drop on my tongue and the coughing sensation kept coming. Okay, uh, let me do another drop. And then the cough hit. This pain was completely off the charts. It was the most pain I've ever been in, even till this day. I was crying. I was balled up. But I think on top of the physical toll that it took, I remember being enraged because I felt betrayed by the guy. I felt stupid for even believing that to begin with. So this is where the struggle really started for Chris, between believing and doubting the remedy the man had given him. But it turned out that was the last time he ever had the cough. It was like a send-off, the big finale. As Chris got older, he wondered what was in that amber vial and if the man had actually cured him. So over the years, it became clear to me who that guy was, who they sent me to, that he was a voodoo doctor. You know, he was a voodoo priest. I'm Haitian. My family's Haitian. Part of Haitian culture is voodoo and voodoo practices. Chris found it odd his family never talked about it. He also wondered what had been wrong with him. His condition was really serious. So what made it go away? Chris actually works in the medical field, selling medications that coincidentally treat lung diseases. But here I am with this experience from childhood that stands in the face of all that. There's this conflict of intellect and life experience. Chris knows his mom would have talked to him about all this, but she passed away when he was 17. And his sister wasn't around much and can't fill in the holes. Of the aunts that were there, two have died. The other two, Aunt Mile and Aunt Renette, he hadn't spoken to in decades. There'd been a bitter fracture in the family a while back, and Chris and Mile had ended up on different sides of it. Beyond that, there's always been an intense discomfort discussing voodoo with the older generation and his family. Chris thinks it's a taboo topic. It would be more than hard to ask them. It would be, you know, virtually impossible. There aren't any medical records, so Chris had to turn to other resources to answer his questions. My search began with Auntie Leslie. She was my mom's best friend. Even though she wasn't there, I expected her to be able to tell me my mother's state of mind because they used to talk every day. She came to see me, and I remember her saying that you were sick, that you were really, really sick. Leslie, unfortunately, didn't know much of the details. Do you remember them taking me to that guy? What guy? She doesn't know where Chris was taken. She said his aunt Mile would be the best resource, the one Chris hasn't spoken to in years. But Leslie also said Chris could try his aunt Mildred, who, in general, knows a lot of the family business. Hello? <laughs> Hi, 
He catches up with her, and he gets to his reason for calling. Says he's been thinking about that time he was really sick as a kid and got sent to New York. Do you remember any of that? No. Oof. She has no memory of the whole episode. Still, Chris tells her, We ended up going to see um, a a voodoo doctor. You too? She explains it wasn't uncommon in the family to visit a voodoo practitioner when they didn't know why someone was sick. She'd been taken too. What it told me is that voodoo is a part of not only Haitian culture, but my family's culture. The older aunts that, you know, were pretty much adults when they moved from Haiti to America. They were living in this Haitian bubble inside of Brooklyn. So they're going to be more connected to voodoo practices. And the... Mildred echoed that only Mile would know the answers to Chris's questions, but he still wasn't ready to go there. Instead, he decided to seek, let's call it a more traditional medical explanation of what might have been going wrong with him. He called up Chris Becker, a pulmonary and critical care doctor at Mount Sinai in New York. Dr. Becker jumped into asking about Chris's symptoms surrounding the cough. Would this be a daily occurrence? or Yes, it was, it was daily. Were you able to identify any triggers? It, it was random. And what was the color of it? They go on for a couple minutes, until Dr. Becker feels he's gotten enough to offer some ideas, which we should emphasize were not to be taken as a diagnosis or medical advice. Hemoptysis or coughing up blood is um, very distressing. We usually take this situation very seriously. Based on Chris's description, Dr. Becker says he was coughing up a moderate amount of blood, and it was pretty clearly coming from his lungs. What you're describing is that you have these this warning, which is probably when the bleeding starts, and then there's a few seconds before that causes you to cough as the lungs realize that there's blood all of a sudden. Chris's explanation knocks a number of chronic illnesses off the list of possibilities, like bronchitis or fungal infections or tuberculosis. This leaves mostly anatomical issues, blood vessels in the wrong place. These arterial venous malformations mean that an artery connects to a vein without the normal pathway, increasing the possibility of spontaneous bleeding in the lungs. Dr. Becker says that if Chris had been his patient, he would have done imaging to look for these abnormalities, see exactly where the bleeding was coming from. That triggered a question I had. And a spontaneous resolution would be possible with some of those conditions? Well, that's actually, in general, that's, that's a bit puzzling, is that this just spontaneously stopped and never recurred. I can't really fully reconcile this because it wouldn't be the most common scenario. This is the part that puzzles Chris, too. How do you get better? Dr. Becker supports patients seeking out different approaches to their medical conditions, including through religion. But for a scenario of significant hemoptysis, in our scientific view, they will not be enough. Is it possible Chris is forgetting some details? Does he just remember it as worse than it was? Either way... You know, you were lucky that those episodes always spontaneously stopped for you, right? But what if one of them hadn't? Listening to Dr. Becker helps me understand that my mother was scared. She was afraid. Small side street here. Uh, So what did his mom think a voodoo priest could do for her son? That's it right there? Okay. We can't find the man who treated Chris all those years ago. But in January of 2023, we head to Queens to see an ordained voodoo priestess named Mambo Florence Jean-Joseph. Go up here and knock and... Hi. <laughs> Mambo Florence is there and you know, on the walls there was you know, a lot of Haitian art. They sat down at her dining table, started talking. Mambo Flo explained that many different people from the Haitian-American community come to her teachers, various professionals, even doctors. Her services have recognized importance to Haitian families. What she provides, in addition to religious ceremonies, is like a counseling service. And she gives her advice according to what she sees as basic voodoo principles. Voodoo is like philosophy. Love yourself, accept yourself the way you are, being in harmony with nature, being in harmony with humans and respect life. 
She explains her advice is not in contradiction to medical advice, but more like a supplement. In fact, she encourages people to get checked out by a doctor before they come. After their talk, Mambo Flo takes Chris down to the basement where she conducts voodoo rituals. And one thing that really took me was how familiar it felt. It was very similar to the room that I was in back when I was 10 years old. He recognized the candles, the altar, even the way the chairs were arranged. Mambo Flo is welcoming and open about her practice, though she acknowledges a stigma voodoo sometimes carries, even within Haitian communities. It's like voodoo is for the uneducated and all that. Even if we have scholars who are voodoo initiates, but when they write, they never refer to it like I practice it. It gave Chris an idea why his aunt doesn't talk about it, and even why he feels reluctant to discuss the whole episode. Driving back from Mambo Flows, Chris returns to the questions that have brought him here. What did I have? How did I get better? And what happened when I was there? When I was at that house, when I was in that basement, what went down? And one thing becomes clear to him. I have to get my questions answered, and my aunt's the only one who truly can. His aunt Mile, he means. The one he's been avoiding. So even though I think it'll be a challenge, I gotta make it happen. That's Chris Lundy and Justin Cremon telling the story of a near-miraculous recovery Chris experienced as a kid. He had a terrible cough. It was extremely painful, and he would even cough up blood, until his mother took him to see a Haitian voodoo priest who gave Chris a mysterious vial of drops. The cough vanished, but the question still remains, how? Coming up, Chris keeps looking for answers, and he finally reaches out to his estranged aunt. You know, there was a, there was a time, I was going to ask you, that I got sick. I was coughing and coughing up yes. blood and stuff. Blood, yes. Okay, because my mother sent me to New York. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that. That's still to come on The Pulse. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity tells you there is more to uncover. How how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. The Embedded podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about medical and healing practices from different cultures. As a kid, Chris Lundy had a debilitating, painful cough. Nothing seemed to help until his mother, a Haitian immigrant, took him to see a voodoo priest. The whole family and all of Chris's aunts went to the appointment. The priest gave him a vial with some drops, and eventually the cough disappeared without a trace. Chris has long wanted to figure out why his family took him to see this priest and how this treatment made him better. But his mother passed away before they ever had a chance to really talk about this. And nobody in his family wanted to talk about voodoo. It seemed like it was off limits. But there was one more family member, an estranged aunt, who might have some answers. Chris knew he had to reach out to her, but he felt like he needed to prepare for that meeting. Here's reporter Justin Cremon. To get ready, Chris called up a person he thought could counsel him on what he might say to his aunt. 
someone who knows a lot about how voodoo fits into Haitian culture and who actually counsels kids about reconnecting to that culture through her organization, the Empowerment Network. I am Dr. Charlene Desir. I'm a professor at Nova Southeastern University. I'm initiated voodoo priestess. Dr. Desir said she could discuss Chris's childhood experience with him. But you have to understand a little context about voodoo. So voodoo was created by kidnapped Africans. During the Middle Passage, enslaved people from all over Africa were taken to the island of Hispaniola, which present-day Haiti shares with the Dominican Republic. The Pan-Africans that were brought to Haiti from various tribes, various classes, various education levels created a system that made sense to them for survival. And that system was called voodoo. Voodoo is more than a religion. It's a system, a way of life and understanding. Academically, we call it an epistemology, a way of knowing. And one of the fundamental aspects of that was health. So people from all over Africa brought these traditions and this knowledge about how to heal the body using the natural resources they had. And this is our inheritance as Haitian people. Chris asked why all the aunts had to accompany him to the Ungan, the voodoo priest. Having the sisters be there in alliance, it shows the love that surrounded you. I don't know, Chris, but I'm sure your family sought out medical care. (laughs) They sought off medical care first. That's where you're going to go first. If it doesn't work, then we have to go to the other doctors. I know what the the majority of people think and believe about about voodoo and and it's like how how do I explain that I had this incredible illness and that I went to a uga and then I no longer had that that incredible illness. Well, brother, you're telling the whole world right now. <laughs> so you ready? You've arrived. I mean, it's very simple. I went to a root doctor. I went to an herbalist. We've been denied our humanity for so many years. This is how we survived slavery. Chris asks why voodoo has this stigma associated with it. We've been miseducated, miseducated as a community. My thing is that we have a problem of respecting things we don't understand. Dr. Desir says that Haitians have been made to feel insecure about voodoo because of hiding it for so long, for their own protection. But given all that secrecy, what should Chris say to his Aunt Mile to get her to open up about his family experience? What is it you want to know? You know that you were healed. You know that at some juncture, despite what's happening now, that there was a relationship that you had with the women in your bloodline. And you are a Haitian-American man, point-blank simple. You are an African-American man. You are a pan-African-American man. But your indigenous roots are voodoo. You're Haitian, spiritually and culturally. I think you just gave me everything I needed. They hung up. And something had shifted in Chris. Something that Dr. Desir gave me that I walked away with was this pride, right? Like being proud of the Haitian culture and where voodoo fits and where it came from. He felt ready to talk to his aunt. a.m. I'm sitting in my car. He's outside his aunt Mile's house. His cousin Gabby came with him for support. All right. Haven't been here in, I don't know, Maybe 15 years. How <sighs> are you? Oh, cold as day. Oh, man. Hi, Chris. How you doing? They sit down together in the house Chris remembers from his childhood, the stairs where he played with his cousins, the table where he ate cereal before going to bed, and the talk's going well. They're sharing good memories, laughing. And then Chris gets to why he contacted Mile now. You know, there was a there was a time I was gonna ask you that I got sick. I was coughing and coughing up yes. blood and stuff. Blood, yes. Okay, because my mother sent me to New York. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that. I went to the doctor. They said that there's something on your chest, your pulmonary thing. Uh-huh. They did a test and everything. And after I went to get a second opinion, what the first doctor had said, it was wrong. Hmm. 
She knows exactly what he's talking about. She confirms how sick he was, how scared they were he was going to die. That's when Chris brings up the other part. I remember we went to the voodoo doctor. You did? We went with you. But I don't remember. You don't remember that? Mm-mm. She says she doesn't recall it. You were there, my mother, Auntie Maya, Auntie Esther, oh. Auntie Annette, oh. all in the room. I don't remember. Again, she says she doesn't remember. I never heard anything after that. You got better. Maybe the voodoo doctor worked. <laughs> <laughs> we just got to peel back that layer yeah. and say, Wait, auntie, auntie, so you Chris almost can't believe what he's hearing. Perfect memory before the Yungan. Perfect memory after. Nothing in between. That's it. You go home, that's it. You go home, that's it. There's something. That's that. They moved on, talked about other things. Chris never got the background he wanted. He figured it was for the reasons Dr. Desir said, the cultural discomfort. Even if he'd gotten past it, it seemed his aunt never would. So where I was at this point was, you know, there were some things that were confirmed. For example, you know, I was sick. You know, it was really, really bad. But there was still a mystery in terms of how I got better. I initially set out to get answers to some factual questions. I didn't get answers to all of that. But what I did get was answers to things that are far more important. Partly, it was reconnecting with his Haitian culture that Chris appreciated, but also something else, something that might have meant even more. Maybe most importantly, I learned about my mother. I think that the longer my mother was in America, I think that she was becoming more and more Americanized, bringing me to the voodoo doctor. In that moment, my mother was Haitian, you know, full-on Haitian. I think that my mother would have went down almost any road to try to get me better. You know, my mother passed away. She was 39 years old, and I was 17 years old. So when she passed, I still saw her as Ma. But through this journey, I think I have a clearer picture of who she was as a woman and who she was as a parent, as a protector. And I love her for it, and I know that she loved me. And as far as how Chris got better... I am more comfortable sitting with the mystery of it. I'm never going to know why I got better. A voodoo priest would say I got better because of the potion that I took. Western medicine doctor would say I'm missing some facts or lucky break. I think what matters is what always mattered, and that is uh, I got better. That story was reported and produced by Chris Lundy and Justin Cramon. And special thanks to Dieu Nalio Sharif for his help on this story. Chris Lundy just said at the end of his story, what mattered is that I got better. And it seems like a lot of patients can relate to this sentiment. They seem less concerned with why something works as long as it brings them relief. Many people in the U.S. use medical treatments that come from different cultures and traditions. Sometimes they're called alternative or integrative. Think acupuncture, homeopathy, or Ayurveda. People spend billions of dollars on this type of care. But providers trained in Western medicine and researchers often look at these approaches with a lot of skepticism. Just ask Gerard Bodecker, who has investigated and studied different types of medicine all over the world. Skepticism comes with the territory. If you work in this field, that is your constant companion. In many instances, skepticism is prejudice. What he often hears when he talks about his work is that there's just no evidence. And there is no evidence is a refrain that really translates as, I haven't looked at the evidence. There are thousands of clinical trials, complementary and traditional medicine around the world. Gerard has contributed a lot to this growing field. He's one of the world's leading experts on traditional medicines. He's investigated treatments for malaria, HIV, and skin conditions. My colleagues and I in Malaysia and Singapore are just currently trialing a wound healing 
plant that's been used throughout the tropics. Very simple but very powerful plant that creates new skin cells. It's used in Vietnam as a burn treatment. We're finding that this is a plant that will close diabetic ulcers within a couple of weeks despite non-closure for years with conventional treatment. When there are findings like this, does it sometimes create a run on this plant? In in Western approaches, there's often a lot of thinking around monetizing a certain treatment or a cure. And when there is something so astonishing as what you've just described, I'm wondering how that then plays out when other people around the world try to get their hands on this treatment? Yes, that's a very valid question, and it's a substantial field in its own right related to the intellectual property surrounding traditional knowledge. And there are protocols around this. The World Intellectual Property Organization, in partnership with WHO, has created guidelines around this. The field that has become known as bioprospecting which has become an unfortunately dirty word because of unethical practice, has really looked at molecules rather than plants because you can't patent something that exists in nature, but you can patent a molecule from it for a specific application. Our work has been with whole plants. It hasn't been with molecules. We've never wanted to go down that track, but others have, and there have been lawsuits and Certain countries, particularly India and Brazil, have been very proactive in fighting back against that kind of strategy. What is the plant called that you mentioned that has the wound healing properties? We're not discussing that right now because ah. <laughs> we're working quietly with the investigators and when the data is out, we'll publish. Gerard Bodecker is a public health researcher and a professor at Oxford University's Green Templeton College. He studied traditional medicine practices all over the world. This is The Pulse. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, a closer look at the challenges that arise when Western medicine tries to quantify and standardize approaches from other cultures. One of the complexities with acupuncture is that it's not just the needle. That's something we've learned. That's next on The Pulse. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward? And what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. What's happening on NPR podcasts? Money. Power. Tacos. White collar crime. Green parties. Black reparations. More of the perspectives that make your world a more vibrant place. NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about different approaches to medicine and healing and how we can understand them better. If you want to get acupuncture in the U.S., chances are you'll pay for that service out of pocket. 
That's because health insurance providers and programs like Medicare and Medicaid do not cover something unless there is scientific proof that this treatment will work for a specific condition. Some acupuncturists say the way to get insurance providers on board is to create more standards for the industry. But fitting this Eastern practice into Western standards has proven to be a challenge. Alan Yu has more. When Tyler Fan was 17, he went to visit his relatives in Vietnam. He has asthma, and Vietnam is hot and humid. It made his asthma worse. His granduncle thought acupuncture might help. He said, "Like you don't have to even trust me on this. Why don't you try it on yourself?" He gave Tyler a quick lesson in how it works and where to put the needles, and then he gave Tyler the needles. I needled my arm, my forearm, which really hurt. Basically, I felt almost like an instantaneous relief in my breathing. Tyler was sold, and his mother told him this medicine is a family tradition passed down through generations. She introduced him to some friends, acupuncturists who work at hospitals in Vietnam that were connected to Buddhist monasteries that serve the poor. Tyler became an apprentice and started doing acupuncture. That was just during the summers. During the rest of the year, he was in Western Pennsylvania where he grew up. Tyler really liked the DIY aspect of acupuncture. He thinks it appealed to him because he was also into punk rock. The unique thing about acupuncture is that you can needle yourself. It gives you a, this great sense of autonomy, and it gives you a sense of self empowerment. After spending a few summers in Vietnam, he decided to pursue acupuncture as a career. But he knew that if he wanted to practice in the U.S., he had to get credentials at an acupuncture school. It was a four-year program at a school in North Carolina. On the very first day of class, his instructor told him the rules. But they made a big note that if you are needling someone without a license, that you are doing something illegal. I don't know if it was me being young, 19 at the time, or being punk rock. I immediately questioned why. Why was it illegal for him to give someone acupuncture without a license? Plus, the acupuncture school taught a much different philosophy compared to what he had grown up with. Here is what Tyler had learned in Vietnam: if somebody has pain in one area, the needles should go into another body part that is similar. For example, if you have like knee pain, what in your body looks like a knee that's not a knee? So you would say an elbow. So if you have like left knee pain, you would needle your right elbow. But at school, he learned a mixture of Chinese and Japanese traditions, translated from the point of view of British and French practitioners. It was totally different. It was all about the flow of energy in the body, and it felt convoluted to Tyler. But he learned this approach. Then he prepared for the national board exams, and it turned out they were looking for yet another approach to acupuncture. A lot of the students were completely in dismay because they'd have to relearn a completely other set of、um, Chinese medicine, which is based on standardized practices that was developed in the late 1950s in the People's Republic of China. Tyler was confused by all of this. Who gets to decide on these standards in the U.S., or what should be taught in acupuncture schools, and why was it so different from what he learned in Vietnam? It seemed a little bit arbitrary and baffling to standardize these disparate practices. Tyler went to London to get a master's degree and a PhD just to answer those questions. In the UK, he could give people acupuncture without going through any licensing board. For his PhD research, Tyler returned to the U.S. and traveled across the country to find out how different acupuncture schools treated patients in their clinics, and what type of acupuncture they were using. But none of the schools wanted to work with him, so he went undercover as a patient and took notes. He went to clinics in Oregon, California, New Mexico, Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. He had shingles at the time and pain in his left shoulder. He wanted to see what people at different clinics would do with the same set of symptoms. I was treated at in, in certain clinics with tuning forks, and then certain clinics with electroacupuncture. 
certain clinics with just regular acupuncture. Some clinics asked very few questions about his health histories. Others asked a lot. I was interviewed in one student clinic for literally two and a half hours for one. And then other student clinics still just interview me for 15 to 45 minutes. He says he felt better to varying degrees after all the treatments he received. So he did not come away thinking any one approach was better than the others. He also tested some clinics that offered herbal medicine. The patient makes a tea out of a prescribed herb mixture and drinks it. Tyler had a bad reaction to the prescribed herbs from one of the clinics. A few minutes after he drank the tea, he felt something was off. And then within like an hour, I started to have really intense heart palpitations and uncontrollable shaking. He's been taking herbal medicine since he was five. And this had never happened to him before. He could have gone to see a doctor, but he was not in his home state. So he was not sure what the insurance coverage would be like. He decided the best thing to do would be to meditate so he could relax. But he could not sleep. Finally, he gave himself acupuncture, despite his cold and shaking hands. He felt better the next day. After testing all of these different methods, he was left wondering, why try to create one national standard, like with the national board exam he had to take, if acupuncture already comes from vastly different traditions and practitioners end up doing vastly different things to patients anyway? If I didn't know anything about Chinese medicine or acupuncture, it would be this black box of like jargon that they're using, right? But I've been studying and practicing for, at that point, 15 years. So I had an understanding, and I knew what points they were going to use. But it was, for me, really fascinating how they came to those points, or to how they came to those specific formulas. And the thing was, is none of it was consistent. He says that variation is a feature, not a bug. He says acupuncture is a little like the slime that his eight-year-old son used to play with. It attaches to like the dirt, it attaches to Legos, and it attaches to anything that it touches, right? And I, I think Chinese medicine is a similar context in the regards to culture. It attaches to a lot of the cultural mores, the regulations, the, the other medical practices that are involved. He says trying to create one standard acupuncture exam in the U.S. is like trying to make slime solid. It's pointless, and it defeats the purpose of the thing in the first place. He says focus on teaching acupuncturists how to keep patients safe, and the logistics of running their own practice. Don't focus as much on one particular type of acupuncture that a board decides should be the standard. People get really combative when I... I'm bringing this up. It is not a popular take, with some acupuncturists who say the field needs standards, because without any, no one would take them seriously. Without regulations, how would someone know if they were going to an acupuncturist who had 10 years of training or 10 hours of training? Elaine Wolf Comaro is a licensed acupuncturist. She has been practicing since the 1990s in Virginia. And she worked with lawmakers in her state to help create the regulations. The establishment had no confidence that we knew what we were doing. Anyone could say they're a master at acupuncture, even if they don't know what they're doing, which could put patients at risk. It is rare, but there can be bad outcomes from acupuncture, like bleeding, bruising, or nerve injuries. So we found it helpful that there was an exam that we could point to as an independent exam that was not offered by the schools that could give some stamp of approval to people who were graduating from acupuncture schools. And having these kinds of standards could also mean that acupuncture will be covered by insurance, says Mina Larson, the CEO of the National Acupuncture Board. She says that would expand access to this treatment. We have 80 million seniors that don't have access to our medicine. So in order to, for us to be able to get to those individuals and help them, all of that 
is through regulation and it, and is through us creating standards. She also says the board now reviews their standards every five years, and they do a broad survey of the field to make sure their regulations can apply to different acupuncture traditions and reflect the diversity of the field. The purpose of the national exam is to make sure people joining the field know the basics of physiology and anatomy. I talked about this with Emily Clothe, a law professor at the University of Kent in the UK. She studies how governments regulate alternative medicine, and she said there are always going to be trade-offs when you apply rules created for Western medicine to other practices. It's a delicate balance between setting standards, safeguarding patients, and protecting the traditions that made these practices appealing in the first place. Tyler Fan continues to practice acupuncture, and he's also a lecturer at the University of Pittsburgh. One of his classes is on Asian medical systems and looks at medicine from China, Tibet, and India. That story was reported by Alan Yu. How exactly does acupuncture work? What are the processes that the needles set off that seem to make people feel better? Richard Harris has been studying that for decades, using tools like brain imaging. He started his career in neurobiology, but he always felt drawn to Eastern medicine practices. I was really fascinated by how Tai Chi and meditation with Qigong changed my mental state as well as my physical body. I was very pleased with how it was making me calmer and less bothered by things and having fewer colds and whatnot. And when he was getting his postdoc degree, he decided to simultaneously enroll in acupuncture school. And I picked acupuncture because there's this concept of qi that is the body's energy, as well as energy elsewhere in the world. And this qi certainly needs to be balanced in order to have good health. He is now a professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Care at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. What is your best working explanation of how acupuncture works? You know, we often talk about whatever, energy flow, so on and so forth. But if you had to explain this in the most scientific way possible, how does it work? Well, there's no one simple answer. It's more of a mixture of many different effects. It seems like inserting acupuncture needles into acupuncture points causes a change in the extracellular matrix. So these are proteins that are hanging out in the milieu between cells and giving cells sort of their structure to anchor onto. And what happens is when you insert a needle into the body, the first thing it does is it's going to change the composition and structure of the extracellular matrix and in the, in the fascia between muscles. So that's kind of one of the first things. It's obvious that when you twist the needle and lift it up and down, the tissue grabs the needle and you can see it kind of getting pulled up as you move the needle in and out. And as a consequence of that, it also seems like nerve cells are also activated. We don't know exactly what all of the neurotransmitters are in the periphery that are doing it, but certainly nerve cells are activated. There's clear evidence that that's the case. And then those peripheral nerves send activity into the spinal cord and the brain, the central nervous system. And there's this thing that happens that it looks like acupuncture kind of rewires some of the circuitry. There's a strong anti-inflammatory response as well with acupuncture. Acupuncture reduces inflammatory cytokines uh, in the periphery and reduces the fact of inflammation. And I guess once we understand how something could possibly work, then it becomes easier to replicate results and to maybe standardize when this is a good approach, when it may not be a good approach, and so on. Yeah, one of the complexities with acupuncture is that it's not just the needle. That's something we've learned. It's not just the acupuncture needle that is doing the business. There's also patient-practitioner interactions. There's the ritual of the treatment. There's a lot of other factors that go into 
this intervention. And the needle is one of them, but it's not the only thing. So it sounds like there are some challenges in trying to fit this very different approach, also kind of ancient approach, into the box that is Western science and medicine. Some of it is difficult. Another major barrier is that acupuncture isn't the only thing that's used in traditional East Asian medicine healing. We've taken the needle out of the environment of, you know, things like Qigong, things of like Tai Chi, you know, exercises, herbal formulations, massage or Twina, like all of those things go into a traditional East Asian medical visit, especially for pain. And what we've done in the West is we've said, okay, well, we're just going to take the needle out <laughs> and just look to see what the needle does by itself. Well, that's important. It's not the only part of the toolbox that's used to help. So that, that's a big problem. And another big problem is that in the West, what we've done is we've used the needling only pretty much in Western medical diagnostic studies. We don't, we're not usually treating liver chi deficiency, you know, or we're not usually treating kidney chi stagnation or something like that, that you would normally see in traditional East Asian medicine. No, we're treating low back pain, <laughs> you know, or knee osteoarthritis. So we're using the Western medical disease label and treating it with one small piece of traditional East Asian medicine and trying to see <laughs> if it works. That's a big challenge. And the fact that the data actually looks pretty strong speaks volumes to like the effectiveness of this. Richard Harris is a professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Care at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsored Train. Leading your organization to higher profits and performance requires a strong foundation. In the face of industry changes, emissions requirements, and new legislation, it takes a high performing building. Train creates turnkey energy strategies for businesses to lower their carbon footprints, prepare for a sustainable future, and meet the needs of occupants and business commitments alike. Open the door to better opportunities at train.com/slash energy services. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave podcast from NPR. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter.